So I love the fact that we're doing questions that God asked. Josh and I actually had a conversation in the spring about this. I told him that I was looking through this topic years ago as my own private devotionals. And my message this week and, and next week are actually just derived straight from my own personal kind of contemplating. I, I'm fascinated that God would ask questions of us. Let me start with a story, true story, from a century ago. A Portuguese sailing ship was off the coast of South America, and it was in dire straits. They had run out of fresh water, and they were stuck in one spot, really in a very bad way. All of a sudden, this other ship came along, and they were able to give word, message back to this other ship to say, this is what's going on. We have no fresh water. Help us. And this other ship sent a message back, three words, lower your buckets. They were stuck right at the mouth of the Amazon where all the water is fresh. And they didn't know it. I believe that we possess, or at least have access to, unlimited resource through Christ. I really believe that. And I think that a lot of us don't always lower our buckets and access what God has for us. And Moses needed to learn that story, that truth. Moses needed to find out what he had. So God asked him a question. And he did it on purpose so that Moses might be ready for what God had for him. By way of a background, I think you probably all know the story of Moses. I mean, the life story of Moses, you know, is the stuff of books and movies, right? It was the first movie I ever saw in the theater. It was Charlton Heston, Yule Brenner. Who knows that movie? The Ten Commandments, right? Awesome movie. Personally, my favorite is, is the Disney animated version, but that's okay. Uh, but that, that story of this baby born into calamity where all the babies were being killed, and the mother literally put that baby into a little basket and just floated it down the river, expecting maybe who knows what, crocodiles, whatever. And it lands at the court of Pharaoh, and Moses grows and becomes a prince of Egypt. As a young adult, he fails. He impulsively murders someone, and then he runs away. He flees, and all of a sudden, he's the prince of a flock of sheep. And here, while he's a shepherd, he gets this feeling that he needs to go up this mountain, that God is calling him. And he encounters God, and God asks him a question. Why don't we hear that piece of the story with Moses before the burning bush? Today, I'll be reading Exodus chapter 3, verse 1 through 15, and Exodus chapter 4, verse 1 through 4. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert, and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, 
why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses! And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land and into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me. And then they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell him? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The, God, the Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake. He ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. Familiar passage, yes? Everybody knows that story? I think so. Have you ever sensed God calling you to do something? You get this inkling, you get this urge, maybe you've heard from him through a time of prayer, and your first response was less than enthusiastic. You said... Well, here are all my objections. I'm not smart enough. I'm not big enough. I don't know enough. I'm not faithful enough. Have you ever been there? Moses was called by God, 
And his first response was, excuse, excuse, excuse. And what I'd like for us to do is look at that story, that situation, look at his objections, and see how God turns the story around by asking him a question. In the midst of his objections, God changes everything by asking him a question. So look at his objections, and I'm hoping that you can identify with some of this. The first objection, his excuse is, who am I? In other words, I'm not capable. I actually really like this. The the confidence and cockiness of young Moses is gone now in his later years, right? This is the guy who lacked faith, who killed somebody, who fled into the desert, and he's like, who am I to do this? I can't pull this off. Have you ever been there? Maybe somebody just invites you here to be participating in some type of ministry, like an essential thing, like serving coffee. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, and, but you, you feel like ill-equipped or not ready or not well enough trained. So God brings exactly the right answer to him. He says, I will certainly be with you. The promise of the presence of God is enough. It's actually huge. And I want you to notice that God does this all through the scriptures, right? In the earliest times with uh, Jacob, who had become Israel, God promised his presence. When Joshua kind of took the reins from Moses in Joshua chapter 1, God promises to be with him through whatever he has to do. Jeremiah got the same story. In fact, we all have gotten that same promise as well. By extension, when you look at Jesus with the apostles, one of the last kind of things that Jesus said on earth with them in Matthew 28, he says, all the power of the kingdom is with me and I'm, I'm asking you, I'm telling you, I'm directing you to go and make disciples of all nations. And he says what? Lo, I will be with you Sometimes. No, always. This promise of the presence of God should have been enough. And if it wasn't, God also says, and by the way, Moses, I already know the future. Like, I'm sending you off to do this big thing. Well, when it's all done, not if, you're all going to show up here. The whole nation's going to be right here at the base of Mount Horeb, and you're going to be worshiping me. Like, the future is secure. We've got this. I already know what's going to happen. And Moses says, I'm not convinced. So excuse number two. He says, what's your name? I, I, don't, I don't really know you. Personally, when I read that in the scriptures, I think that's a very reasonable objection. Back in that day, in all the different cultures, the Egyptians and all kinds of other cultures around there, People invented gods like crazy, little g gods. People made up somebody that was going to protect their crops, somebody that was going to wail on their enemies, somebody that was going to, like, for whatever need they had, they invented a god, and they'd make a little symbol or an icon or some kind of thing, and everybody would talk to it or worship it or bow down to it, right? Well, here's Moses saying, you're calling me to do this. I really, I don't even know who you are. And I think that's reasonable. 
Because again in that day, if you wanted to ask anything of a God, you had to speak that thing's name. No name, no relationship, no connection. No relationship, no expectation of an answer. And so he's saying, if I don't know who you are, if they're like, well, who sent you? And he's like, I don't know. They shouldn't expect him to be able to do anything. So God, again, gives exactly the right answer. He says, I am who I am. And that phrase, the, you could look at the I am's in Scripture and you could spend your lifetime. Other people way smarter than me have done that, written entire books on all the meaning, the depth of meaning of the I am statement. And I don't know what all of that means. I can tell you it's at least this much. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're different. Like, there was a time that I wasn't. I mean, in my day, we would say, I used to just be the, a twinkle in my father's eye. You heard that phrase? And so that was true. And then I was born. Then I came to be. And I grew. I developed. I changed. I progressed. And some would say, I've regressed a little bit. That you can only tell by my haircut. But that might be true. All of us become, and then there are days here on earth, they will end. But God isn't like that. Jesus isn't like that. God is immutable. Nothing about him changes. He identifies himself as this constancy. And he also says, I am the God of your fathers. He identifies himself. God's name is the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, God of, right, so of Israel. God is the God of, and he names himself actually by these people. And when he says, I'm the Lord of, he uses that in our new international versions. It's the L-O-R-D, all capitalized. And when you see that, that specifically means Yahweh or Jehovah, right? It's the God, not, not the same as when you read God in Exodus or Genesis 1 and 2, when you read of El or El Shaddai, this God of creation, God of power. This is God of relationship, God of connection, God of covenant, God of intimacy. So he says, I'm the God who doesn't change. I'm the God of promise and of unrelenting relationship. So Moses says, right, yes, let's do it. Wait, no, he keeps objecting. Excuse number three, they won't believe me. He's saying, I need proof. They're not going to believe you've spoken to me. I'm the coward that ran away. Have you ever been there? Not that you've killed somebody and ran away. Have you ever felt like your life doesn't measure up to your testimony? I have. So God provides three signs. He takes a staff. This is my two-by-two staff. If anybody needs a piece of wood, come on up. You can have it later. You can... No, don't fight over it. You can have it. This is my staff. So, so God takes something simple, a staff, and he turns it into a snake. And then he tells Moses to take his nice clean hand, put it in his cloak, pull it out. Oh, it's all diseased and leprous. Put it back in, bring it out. Oh, it's, now it's healthy again. 
And he doesn't do it right then, but he promises that he's going to go to Egypt and he's going to take this bowl and take some water from the Nile, pour it out, and it's going to turn into blood. It's like the proof, catch this, I worked on this for a long time, the proof is in the poof. God goes, poof, 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 shazam, look at that, boom, boom, boom. God knows that Moses needs proof. And he gives him these powerful signs, though it should have just been himself and his name that was enough. And in the, in the context, in the midst of this conversation, God then says, out of the blue, hey, Moses, what you got there? I find that hilarious. This is a serious conversation about commissioning somebody to go and deliver an entire nation out of bondage. And God goes, hey, what's that? Was God nearsighted? Was God confused by this newfangled technology? Maybe God was like me, because I'm a little hyperactive ADHD, and he was like, squirrel, squirrel, squirrel. Is, is that true? Please shake your heads. No, 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 no. God stops answering his questions, and God asks Moses a question for the express purpose that Moses would learn something that God already knows. Moses Look what I can do with a stick in your hands. Moses, you are empowered. You've got what you need to pull this off, Moses. Right now, wherever you're at, whatever you're going through, whatever you're experiencing, God can use you, me, all of us, like mightily, if we would just lower our buckets, and draw from what's available to us through Christ. So I think the point isn't just that Moses has a really, really good stick. I'm pretty sure that's not it. I think the point is this isn't actually Moses' job. This is God's. This isn't Moses' mission God is on a mission. God's going to get this done. He's chosen to use Moses in the midst of that. But this is God's mission, not Moses. So it's going to happen. So what I'd like us to do is just briefly, I want us to discover our equipment. Moses had a stick. What do we have as those who name Christ as our Savior? We need to take stock and realize that. First, I want to mention somebody as an example of of the antithesis, of the exact opposite of that. Hetty Green. In 1916, Hetty Green died. Her nickname was the Witch of Wall Street. In her day, Hetty was worth more than $100 million dollars. Pretty good back in the early 1900s. She was also named by the Guinness Book as the greatest miser that's ever lived. Hetty would not dip her bucket. Hetty lived in abject poverty. She would eat cold oatmeal for breakfast every day because she didn't want to spend the money to heat it up. Right? Hetty's son got an infection in his leg 
And she went from doctor to doctor to try to find something that could treat him, but she didn't want to spend the money. All the treatments that were prescribed to her, she didn't want to spend the money. And her son eventually lost his leg. Hetty literally died while, as she died, she was arguing over the price of milk. That was Hetty. Hetty, lower your bucket. She had so much resource and wouldn't use it. So what do you have? What do, I, what do we have as Christians? Well, first we have God's spirit. We have Christ's spirit living in us. Second Timothy says, for God did not give us a spirit of timidity, of fear, but a spirit of power, of love, of self-discipline. We, as the in Christ people, God's spirit communes with our spirit. We have that. We have our savvy. And by that, so I, you know, by way of passages, I put up Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, the 4, 4, 12, 12 passage. Those passages all give us those lists of spiritual gifts, teaching, preaching, giving, serving, helping, whatever. When you come to Christ, God gives you gifts, things to be of service to this world and to each other. But you have more than that. Not only your spiritual gifts, you have your, your perceptions, your unique talents, your own passions. You have so many things that make up you uniquely that you have. And God's given you all that. Thirdly, you have your situation. It's amazing to me that Paul was, was in jail writing to the Philippians this book about joy <laughs> and says, you know, I totally know what it's like to be in want, to be in need, and I completely know what it is to have plenty. But whatever my circumstance, I've learned a secret of getting through anything. He says, it's, it's Christ in me. I know how to do this because Christ's spirit abides in me and he's going to get me through. I think that's amazing. Even more amazing, the fourth thing we have, and this is not a comprehensive list, we have our weaknesses and our shortcomings. Who would have thought that would make it on our list of assets? I would suggest to you that sometimes we need to see our predicaments, our, our, our limitations, through God's eyes. It's often in our weakness that we're most effective for God. A bunch of years ago, Mary and I took time away from our work and our usual ministry, and we joined a short-term mission team for the summer. And part of that time, we were in a downtown urban center. We were literally living upstairs at a drop-in center for homeless. And we were helping make the meals, and we were serving people. And there were times when I would be sitting across the table from some people from, that were living on the street, and we were in conversation. And they were going through difficulties. And I was able to speak two huge theological words. No, not something I learned from seminary. Two giant words that made all the difference in our connection. Me too. Me too. So they looked at me and there's that guy who's dressed okay and it looks like he's showered recently and he's got it all together and everything's fine in his life. 
I was raised in a home with an alcoholic father and a lot of difficult situations that that created. And some of them had as well. And to be able to say, to some degree, I, I'm with you, I can connect to that. And I'm not saying that God wants us to have horrible things happen. Think of, think of one of the worst things that could happen. What if you or somebody you know was abused at some point? Did God want that? No. Can God use that? Yes. And just the way I described, perhaps you can connect with somebody who's going through a similar crisis. You're maybe the only person here that's able to come alongside someone because of your experience. And I'm not saying that God wants all of that to happen to us. God doesn't will necessarily for horrific things to happen. But sin is in this world. Sometimes we're the victims of other people's sin. In my situation, sometimes I go through hard times because of my own stupidity. I'll admit that. But God allows even those things to be used. So briefly application. Where do we go from here? It's not enough to just say, what do I have? What are the goods? What are the good things I have? You know, when I, I think of a football player lined up at the line of scrimmage, and he's about to run into somebody, and he doesn't just go, oh, I've got good knee pads. Oh, I think these shoulder pads are pretty okay. He actually stares down his opponent, and he kind of surmises what's going on with that person, right, that he's about to bump into. And I think that we need to not only do a self-check of what do we have, what equipment has God made available to us, I think sometimes we also need to look at the, the obstacles that we need to overcome. Again, not comprehensive, I'm going to list three, and maybe this is part of our application today. Besides maybe taking stock of what you have, maybe think about what are the barriers to you getting on board with whatever it is God is calling you to or asking of you. Three things, first, overcoming fear. It's been my experience in talking with other people that by and large, many people live their lives driven by the fears of their past. Past failures, burnouts, doubts, dead dreams, whatever it might be, a lot of people just live in the shadow of that. And God says, don't fear, for I am with you. I am your God. And perfect love casts out fear. Second thing is overcoming sin. So I've already mentioned that. Uh, look at When we come to believe in Christ, when we honestly confess, hey, God, I don't quite measure up to your standard, but Christ died for that, and you can make me altogether new. I accept that. I believe that. I receive that. That's not a one-off, one-and-done thing. As a believer, to be a growing, authentic Christian, that's a daily experience. It has been for me to come to God and say, where have I failed you? Where are we going together? If, if you're not near, if I don't know that you're near God, who's moved? Surely it hasn't been you. It's been me. I need to come back. And maybe that's where you're at today overcoming sin. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Third thing is overcoming blindness. And I don't know what your blind spots are. I am, I'm, I'm going to admit I'm thankful that I have a wife who knows mine. I might not admit this later. 
but it's, it's good to figure out what the blindness is, what the planks in our eyes are. Whoever hates walks in darkness. Darkness has blinded him. Maybe that's our issue. The hate, the judgment that we have, Josh mentioned last week. Second Corinthians says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And I would say, the devil would really love for you to hear what you've just heard this morning and then convince you that you're useless, you're burnt out, you're too busy, you're too tired, you're unqualified, and to just snatch this message away so that you do not become more effective for the kingdom. And there's a, another big, strong theological word that you can speak to that. It's this, hogwash. God saved you on God saves you for a reason. First, because he loves you. Second, because he wants to live eternally with you, for you to be with him in eternity. And thirdly, because God is on a mission, and he wants us involved. So last thing I'll say just by way of illustration, if you haven't caught what I'm saying yet. There's a little tiny town in Alaska that I can't pronounce that a bunch of years ago had a giant fire in their power plant and, and it cost them greatly. And basically all that small townsfolk stood around and watched this fire blaze. And meanwhile, right nearby, they had a big, bright, shiny, red, brand new fire truck. They had saved up, purchased the truck, but nobody had yet been trained how to use it. I think most of us in our Christian lives don't arrogantly aspire for too much. I think we sell ourselves short. And I want to invite you to dip into the bucket. Let's pray. God, I'm just going to acknowledge again that you are amazing. I let off praying that this morning. You are majestic, you are glorious, you're powerful, you're huge. And somehow you've chosen to use even us. We acknowledge your power is limitless. You never get tired. You call us. Call us out of sin and call us into service. And we know, Lord, that the Christian life isn't all about do. We know it's first about be. Teach us what it means to be in you, for you to be in us. And that that would inspire and enable and empower us to then love you back effectively in your kingdom work. So I just want to thank you, God, for what it is that you are asking us or asking of us this morning. I'm sure it's different for each person here. Keep asking, keep calling, and may we be found faithful and available for your glory, and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.